Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. My god, it has been so long since I have done a podcast with Alex. It's me and Alex who we've got on today. Yeah, I'm beginning to think you cease to exist, if I'm honest. We've got a returning guest today. Uh, Tracy Borman is a historian who specialises in Tudor and royal history and has written books on witches, a tale of sorcery, scandal and seduction. Of course, she's written about Thomas Cromwell as well. Also Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror and Elizabeth's Women. But she's here today because she's got a new book out that looks at Anne Boleyn and her daughter, Queen Elizabeth, kind of together, which I really like, because I don't think we ever really pay much attention to that relationship between them. Like, in a way, like, we deal with Anne and Henry, don't we, Tracy? And then we deal with Elizabeth, but we don't ever look at them together. Yeah, that's so true. And the kind of common myth is that Elizabeth thought nothing about her mother, I guess you can understand why, because she was less than three when Anne mm. was executed. But the influence that Anne had on her daughter was absolutely profound. It's very obvious to me, and from the research I've done, that Elizabeth grew up you know, just revering her mother's memory and wanting to rehabilitate her from this completely unjust reputation as the great whore and the concubine and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and she was intensely loyal to Anne. So, yeah, it was a total revelation writing this book. And I think high time as well. Uh, yeah. This mother-daughter relationship was brought to light and not just endlessly obsessing over Anne as one of the six wives or Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen. I am all for a version of the story where we just ignore Henry because he's... <laughs> he would hate this book. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. No, I call that a win. Um, yeah. So, obviously, we, again, we look at, Elizabeth don't we from her perspective as she's a, a daughter of Henry VIII and he's after sons and everything but like what impact did the Boleyns have on who she is so Anne's family and her upbringing um what kind of mother is she likely to make yeah you'd think that um Anne wasn't a, a kind of maternal woman if that's not generalizing too much just because she seems more at home in the political arena she's um Obviously, highly intelligent, very opinionated, and all the rest of it. Not that you can be can't be both things, you know, a mother and intelligent. By the way, <laughs> I'm yeah. saying that, but you just wouldn't necessarily have her down as somebody who wants to spend all her time with her infant daughter. But that's exactly who she becomes when she has Elizabeth. She dotes on her from the start, even though you know she's the wrong sex for Anne. It should have been a boy. Um, but Anne can't get enough of her baby daughter and she's, you know, she gets a, a made to measure velvet cushion 
next to her throne so that Elizabeth can be placed next to her while she's conducting state business. She tries to breastfeed Elizabeth herself, which causes an absolute scandal. You know, royal wives don't do that. And Henry vetoes it straight away. Um, and, and it's very obvious that the maternal bond is incredibly strong and it remains strong throughout Elizabeth's life. Um, she surrounds herself with Berlins. I think she is first and foremost a Berlin. She actually looks a lot like her mother, apart from the red hair, mm. shape, dark eyes, all the rest of it. And yeah, if it's not too much of a pun for the Tudor period to say chip off the old block, I think she certainly was. She was, uh, quite a mercurial temper like Anne, uh, mm. but also inher- inherited her intelligence as well. So yeah, I think, uh, the, the, a daughter of which, um, her mother would have been proud. So. There's a slightly bit of an overlap between Henry getting married to Catherine of Aragon and Anne coming onto the scene. And yeah, there is an overlap. I don't think we talk about that enough, that Henry VIII mm. is actually a bit of a bigamist for a wife. We don't, also don't talk about the fact that I think everybody thinks that these sort of wives are spaced out, but they're not. I mean, he does a silver wedding anniversary with Catherine. He's married to her for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And And for the record, I think, Probably she was the wife he was the most fond of. I don't believe the whole Jane Seymour mm. PR. She just gave him a son. Um, but yeah, um, absolutely. And there was overlap. So he marries Anne in January 1533. His annulment doesn't really come through till May that year. So yeah, he's kind of uh, breaking the law. But let's just bypass that because we're Henry VIII and we can do whatever we like. Um, so at the time that he marries Anne Boleyn, she is pregnant now, famously, Anne had held out from being Henry's mistress uh, and uh, encouraged by her family. She obviously moves towards being Henry's wife. Um, but when she's sure she is going to get the crown on that head, uh, on her head, she does finally sleep with Henry and she falls pregnant almost immediately. Uh, and then, yeah, so she is. So Elizabeth is on her way at the time that her parents are married in January 1533. You've already touched on um, the kind of mother Anne was, but let's look at that in a bit more detail. So do we know much about the birth, first of all? So we know a lot about the preparation for the birth. Um, Mm. Lady Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry VII, of course, she laid down these very bizarre rules and rituals for for a royal confinement. This is when a, a royal mother goes into seclusion for a month before the birth. And there are all these various things that um, Lady Margaret said had to happen for a successful birth, including blocking out all natural light. So you hang the walls with tapestries, you stuff material into keyholes, you close all the shutters. Natural light is thought to be bad for both the mother and the child. Um, they light fires in every room. Well, this is August for poor old Anne, so it must have been oh, suffocating. <laughs> um, and uh, then they get, have several beds put into position, a sort of ceremonial bed, then a birthing bed, and then a a tiny little cot for the, um, for the infant, for the newborn. And then there are the the whole room or suite of rooms is filled with, with women. It's a female only environment, no men allowed for once. Uh, So um, they are serving Anne, they're keeping her company, they're gossiping to her. In fact, there are women strictly called gossips they're there to kind of take Anne's mind off things um and there's lots of religious elements there as you might imagine a little altar there's a sort of a mini font for baptizing a sickly baby they've got it all covered uh and Anne is spending a lot of time there or she's supposed to but 
um actually her confinement isn't a month she's only in there for for a week or two and then and then she gives birth so i think either her due date was miscalculated or she slightly fibbed about exactly when elizabeth was conceived because she wouldn't have wanted to give the impression that elizabeth was conceived out of wedlock so you said that she was immediately like devoted to her daughter and that but is there any sort of record on his reaction when it turns out to be a girl yeah about it i mean i'm guessing yes because it's him but of course yeah yeah absolutely um I think he's he's pretty crushed. Uh, he mm-hmm. confidently expected a boy. He'd gone to rather a lot of trouble for this marriage, uh, you know, breaking from Rome, setting up his own church to grant himself an annulment. Um, so he's pretty crushed, but it's a setback. It's not a permanent disaster. And I think we, we shouldn't layer on too much hindsight onto this and say, because yeah. well, we know Anne didn't have any more healthy children. She just miscarried. Um, and so, you know, it, it, at least she proved she could have a healthy child. Because Catherine hadn't done that since Mary. So, I mean, he, yeah. it, it's not the end of the world, is it? No, by no means. And so, yeah, we shouldn't kind of labour that point, I don't think, too much. Although, you know, Henry makes this rather tactless remark when he first visits Anne and uh, his newborn daughter. Um, and it goes along the lines of, you know, never mind, boys will follow. And it's kind of a command rather than yeah. an observation. And I think Anne understands it very well as being that. So, yes, Henry is not pleased, but it's not an unmitigated disaster. So we really briefly touched on Anne being a mother to Elizabeth. Do we know much more about that? I mean, how was she a mother to her? Did they spend a lot of time together? Did she see her once in a blue moon like she was supposed to? How did that go? So for the first three months, um, Anne and Elizabeth were together a lot. As I mentioned, you know, Anne made sure that Elizabeth was next to her when she was conducting her state business. But then, uh, according to royal tradition, at the age of three months, uh, Elizabeth was packed off to her own household. And that household was at Hatfield House, north of London. She went with 50 servants. Uh, most of them carefully selected, handpicked by her mother, Anne, who wanted her surrounded by Berlins and by, you know, positive influences who would uh, help Elizabeth to grow up with a real awareness of her mother. And Anne visited when she could, but it was seldom, really, because of her, her pressure, the pressure she was under to conceive again and to be be the queen consort. Um, but she did send numerous gifts to Elizabeth and they were nearly always clothes uh, so she had these kind of made to measure beautiful dresses and, and velvet caps and she went to enormous trouble. Anne's account books show that for one single purple velvet cap uh, she she got a boat to go to and from Greenwich uh, to, just to get the measurements right three times uh, and then finally she was satisfied and uh, and the, the cap could be sent off to her daughter. So, yeah, Anne went to a lot of trouble and expense in decking Elizabeth out in, in very fine clothes. It's probably where Elizabeth's love of fashion began, actually. So there's psychologically, like, like you say, this is what's done at three months. Do we know the reasoning behind that? I mean, it, it is just what's done, but is it so that, you know, disease, they're not in the same place, maybe? Does it go back to that? And so she would have been expecting to kind of lose constant access to her daughter. But does she say anything about that? Um, yeah, I mean, she doesn't really make comment because, as you say, it's a long established tradition. I think it's partly because of of disease, you know, get away from plague ridden London and out in the country that the area is much healthier. But it's also 
because childhood is much shorter in Tudor times and they want to foster this sense of independence on the part of their mm. and spares. And, you know, it astonished me to discover, actually, when I was writing my book about the private lives of the Tudors, that that childhood ended at the age of six. That's yeah, where... I'm going to say, you get them getting betrothed at like seven and eight, don't you? Isn't well, yeah, exactly. Betrothed from a Frenchman at the age of seven, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, absolutely she is. And, and, and um, you know, so from the age of six, that's when you're dressed in adult clothes. Uh, you're kind of treated as an adult. Uh, many children, not royal children, but start work then. You know, so childhood is so much shorter in Tudor times. It's quite shocking, really. We've mentioned, obviously, that at the point Elizabeth's born, it's not the end of the world. But we do know that Anne does not have any more healthy children. There are miscarriages, aren't there? Um, and isn't the the most prolific of the miscarriages towards the end that they know yeah. that was a boy, don't they, when they yeah. examine? But she doesn't have another son um, and he starts to lose interest. Yeah. So Anne, we think um, it has three miscarriages after Elizabeth's uh, birth, pretty much one a year. Uh, and as you say, the last one is the one we know most about. It takes place in January 1536. That's the month when it, when when everything happens, because Henry has his jousting accident, which has mm-hmm. ramifications. Um, Catherine of Aragon dies. And on the day that they bury Catherine, Anne miscarries. And she's 14 weeks pregnant. Now, you're quite right. People said at the time they could tell it was a boy she carried. But modern medical advice says that you need to be at least 17 weeks to be able to tell the sex of the child so I don't know if that's just a bit more character assassination just sticking the knife in saying oh it was a boy as well and she lost it you know Um, this is the thing isn't it like because I think we just pretty much accept now that everything she was accused of and beheaded for was it was a fit fit up wasn't it Totally. I, d- I personally believe she was innocent of all the charges. I mean, goodness me, this is was... an idiot. She'd waited so long and worked so hard and she yeah, had it. Exactly. A woman who's prepared to wait seven years to marry a king is not going to throw it all away on thoughtless affairs. And the case wouldn't even come to court today. It was just hearsay and rumour. Uh, so I think she was she was completely innocent. Her only crime was not giving Henry a son, and that's as far as it went. If she'd had a son, she definitely wouldn't have been arrested, uh, tried for treason, and executed. Young Elizabeth is far away from her mother. What is her life like during, basically, Anne's fall from grace? Yeah, so Elizabeth's life changed... Sorry, Elizabeth's life changes abruptly. As soon as that sword cuts off her mother's head, uh, she goes from being Princess Elizabeth to Lady Elizabeth. And even though she's only two years and eight months old, she knows that. She knows that people are addressing her differently because her parents' marriage has been annulled just before Anne's execution. So Elizabeth's now a bastard. She's illegitimate. No hope of ever coming to the throne. And she famously asks one of her staff, Sir John Shelton, why is everybody calling me Lady Elizabeth when yesterday I was Princess Elizabeth? And she soon learns, you know, the full horror of her mother's fate and you you get a sense of like rats and sinking ships when it comes to Elizabeth's household quite a few people Mm -hmm. leave if they can um and those that are left clearly feel really resentful they're kind of writing letters to court saying look what's going on are we still supposed to serve Elizabeth as as a royal child what you know what's happening and you get this heartbreaking letter from Lady Margaret Bryan who's like this matriarch who's looked after all Henry's children and she writes to Thomas Cromwell saying, look, 
Elizabeth doesn't even have any clothes now. She's outgrown all the clothes that her mother sent her. Uh, so she's got nothing to wear. Um, you know, she's so neglected, so forgotten. Yeah, please do something about it. Well, Lady Margaret was not a woman to be ignored, and I don't think Cromwell did ignore her because that was the last letter we have of her complaining of this, so probably he managed to arrange some clothes. But otherwise, there's very much a sense of Elizabeth being an outcast, just forgotten by her father, and certainly he wanted to forget her. She looked like her mother. She reminded him of Anne, and he was busy having all traces of Anne removed from his palaces because he missed was, one though, didn't he, at your place of work? Ah. Yeah, well, he did. <laughs> missed one or two in Hampton Court. Yeah. He intertwined H and A. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of those in the Great Hall uh, and uh, elsewhere, and then Anne's falcon as well is in the ceiling. So he didn't get all of them. I quite. I like would them. love to ask you though. Did you get a sense? Because I was thought that it must have been so psychologically damaging to that little girl to be the centre of the universe and the heir, like not on air, but she was the heir really until a boy was born. So to be the centre of the world and then have that ripped away from her and told she's nothing and then have it given back and then only given back if you agreed to some sort of caveats um, about the church and things like that. Do you I mean, I, of course it damaged her, but do you actually get to kind of measure that with the sources you look at? Well, you can measure, I think, um, the way in which, uh, certainly Elizabeth reacts to the idea of marriage. She mm. becomes kind of hysterical when pressed to marry when she's queen. You know, clearly there's a deep psychological impact of her childhood here. It's not just that she makes a political decision and that's part of it, not to marry. But it goes much, much deeper than that. She's been traumatised, I think, by this turbulent upbringing. And I think as well, Elizabeth is always at pains to point out she has a right to the throne and these are my parents and all of that. And it's almost like she's protesting too much sometimes because she's been scarred by this early experience and, and being, you know, one minute you're in line for the throne, the next you're a forgotten bastard just living miles from court and your father never wants to see you and your mother's dead. Uh, that's bound to leave a scar. And I think it, it really does. Uh, and yeah, you see, yeah, absolutely. You see Elizabeth particularly going to town at her coronation. And this is one of my favourite kind of little scenes uh, in the book, really, because Elizabeth really had to do a big PR stunt for her coronation and convince her people that she was the rightful queen. So she went to town. But what I love is that she based her coronation on her mother Anne's So she even used some of the same designers. She had a life-size model of Anne on the processional route. She's not going to hide the fact she's Anne Boleyn's daughter. She's, she's celebrating it. And I think, yeah, that, that was almost the, probably the, the least subtle thing Elizabeth did regarding her mother. Because for the most part, um, she is subtle. She knows that Anne is divisive. Uh, so it's more about actions than words with Elizabeth, but the coronation, oh, no holes barred got to ask as well there is another woman who is like the victim of henry the oh, i'm just gonna say it the victim of his fuckery basically he's <laughs> a human being and that's mary and what's interesting to me is so the pendulum goes backwards and forwards if elizabeth's out of favor mary's in it and if yeah. mary's out of favor elizabeth's in it so how does that affect those two yes if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think to the credit of both, uh, Almost they don't let that get in the way of them being sisters. Um, so it all goes horribly wrong when Mary's queen. But before that, they're actually very close. And I think I really admire Mary for this because she has every reason to despise Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth's mother ousted her own mother from the throne, ruined her life. So you'd think she would really resent her little half-sister. But instead, she seems to have felt sorry for Elizabeth. And she was a, quite a maternal woman, was Mary. Well, and there's so, quite a big age gap. She's almost yeah. old enough to be her mother, isn't she? Well, yeah, she is. She is. And that's the point, I think. And she writes to her, their father, kind of saying, look, don't forget Elizabeth. She's, she's really great and she's precocious and you'd be proud of her. And I think that is, that's such a lovely gesture by Mary. And Mary gets such a bad press as, yeah. you know, bloody Mary and all the rest of it. But I think that there was much to admire in her. And, and yeah, the two sisters were close and Elizabeth absolutely adored Mary growing up. But then the thing that divided them was not their mothers or indeed their father, but religion. And, and yeah. that came to dominate their relationship. Of course, Mary famously very devoutly Catholic and Elizabeth was all about the reformed religion. I've got to tell you, Tudors is absolute shite. That's not what they show on that stupid programme. They show the horrible <laughs> yeah. rivalry. Because all that's going through my mind, obviously, I'm really sorry. You know, you're now a 20th century historian. But that's what they show you is that there's this horrible hatred between the two. And Mary hates her little sister. And then her little sister. It's ridiculous. Because you're portraying something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, there's no evidence for that. That Certainly, uh, there were troubles between the sisters when Mary was queen but on a personal level they absolutely didn't hate each other that's far too just simplistic but then I suppose with screen portrayals you have to have heroes and villains and they have to you know you can't just get people who get on sometimes but not others that doesn't make good tv you have to have you know fierce enemies and and obviously Elizabeth and Mary are good candidates for that um 
on paper, even though in theory, uh, uh, sorry, even though in practice, they actually got on very, very well. So, yeah, um, Tudors have got a lot to answer for. I, have to say. I think as well, like that it's something, it's a real credit to both of them, isn't it? But it is, they are, each of them are the only other person that understands what the other one is going through. Because yeah. he, obviously it's always the opposite to the opposite child, but they yeah. are always going through the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. The other person yeah. with shared experience. Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. You know, that they've both been through the mill and they've, both had a mother rejected by Henry VIII and had their own status dramatically diminished as a result. So, yeah, in a way, that's probably something that unites them. You know, adversity is is very good at binding people together. And they both absolutely experienced the extreme highs and lows of being a daughter of Henry VIII. If I can chuck in a question that isn't on the thing and hope not to scare you with it, um, <laughs> in terms of upbringing then Elizabeth what kind of did she so she, she's two years and eight months when her mother died yeah she's not going to have any cognitive memory of Anne Boleyn but she's who is telling her about her mother who is it that wow. is keeping her mother alive if you like for the for yeah. Elizabeth in informative years that's a great question because this is when Anne Boleyn's determination to appoint her daughter's staff really comes good because she'd chosen well she'd chosen mostly women, uh, to serve her daughter who were either Berlin relatives or favourable to the Berlins. So um, it's people like um, Kat Astley, her, her kind of governess, who Elizabeth adored very close to. Um, she's kind of like a playmate, really. She was quite young. Blanche Parry, another Berlin associate, um, very much the opposite. She was a kind of more straight-laced but very, very loyal uh, nursemaid. And then, you know, you have the Sheltons, their Berlin relatives. So I think... Anne chose really, really well because clearly Elizabeth grew up with positive influences uh, about her mother, in contrast to the rest of the kingdom, who were believing the hype about Anne being this great whore who seduced five men, including her own brother. Don't forget exactly. the musician. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, dear. It, I mean, you couldn't make it up, but... But no, Elizabeth, I mean, it, I guess it's possible that Elizabeth was being told all of that nonsense as well. And she just formed her own opinion. But I think it's more likely that these were quite positive influences she was surrounded with. And she kept these women with her really until they died. You know, they served her for the rest of their lives while she was queen. Blanche Parry was still in service when she was 80 years old. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth had this kind of close knit kind of body of servants from her time after losing her mother all the way up to, you know, being well into her reign as queen. So, yeah, family ties, family loyalty, they meant everything to Elizabeth. Well, she finally succeeds the throne and uh, defies all odds. So talk us through what England was like at the time she succeeded to it. So it was deeply divided. Uh, and probably confused because religion had swung first one way, then the other. We'd had Henry VIII's Reformation, which didn't stop us being Catholic, uh, but it stopped us being Roman Catholicism. Light, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It is diet Catholicism or something. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, and then, and then Protestantism big time with Henry's son Edward VI and briefly with Lady Jane Grey. But then Mary takes it back, or tries to, to the Roman Catholic fold. And so basically it's split in two by the time Elizabeth comes to the throne. And I think this is where she is very, very canny, because she's learned from Mary's example. She's not going to 
stand on principle too much. She just seeks compromise and a middle way. Now, Elizabeth never actually said she didn't want to make windows into men's souls. I think that was Francis Bacon who said that. But actually, that neatly summarised her approach. Uh, almost, look, believe what you want to believe, conform in, in public. Um, and she just, by a whisker, got the religious settlement passed through. Um, there was a big vote on it, and, you know, it literally came down to about one vote in her favour. Um, so so that was it. It was comp- It wasn't an amazingly watertight compromise, but it was a compromise and it was better than people had had. And so I, th- I think this typified Elizabeth's approach to other matters as well. She was a pragmatist. And I personally really admire that. When you see how people just doggedly stand by their principles before Elizabeth and suffer by it. And uh, Elizabeth was much influenced by her stepmother, Anne of Cleves, who's my own personal favourite of the six. You recorded on her yesterday. Oh, I love her. I love her. She's so sensible and kind of pragmatic. And and I think Elizabeth really learned from that and so applied it to religion and politics and war and pretty much everything else that she tackled, uh, but always with an eye to her image and to popular opinion. And, And that was essential for any successful monarch. Yeah, I I love it. I think actually that Anne of Cleves' influence is, is quite, is a really positive influence, isn't it, on both Mary and Elizabeth? Yes, it's so positive. I so admire her for that. I mean, any woman who manages to get on with both of those daughters at a time when religion is really at the fore uh, earns some admiration in, in my view. Um, and Anne of Cleves, frankly, she got on with everybody. She Nobody's got a bad word to say about Anne of Cleves. And I think she does the best out of out of her marriage to Henry, five palaces, £20,000 a year. What is not to like? And she doesn't have to put up with Henry for longer than six months. So it's all good. And his stinky leg. Oh, that's really <laughs> annoying me when people obsess about Anne. Oh, she was ugly. Come on, pot and kettle, Henry. I yeah. mean, he's not exactly an oil painting by then, is he? Oh, really? I know. It's just like, if I think someone said, we were, were recording on like the House of Cleves and all the German side of it the other day, and, and someone said in the recording, like, if there was one fat, ugly, smelly person in that marriage bed, it wasn't Anne. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So, obviously, so Anne has been really shrewd in putting these Boleyn relatives and the Boleyn faction in her daughter's household as a child. But does that carry over into Elizabeth's reign as well? The, is, obviously, the direct Boleyns, George is God as well, uh, and the dad is ousted. But in terms of the wider family, is there a place for them during Elizabeth's reign? There certainly is. It's a Boleyn-dominated court, and particularly in Elizabeth's private world, her privy chamber, Pretty much every one of the prized positions goes to her Berlin relatives. You see the Careys in evidence. Now, they're descendants of uh, Anne Boleyn's sister, Mary. Um, and Henry Carey, uh, Mary Boleyn's son, very, very highly favoured, as are all of his children and grandchildren. Um, interesting as well is that it's not just her Boleyn relatives, but also Henry Norris, was the son of the elder Henry Norris, who was one of the five executed for adultery with Anne. And Henry Norris was the only one to speak in her defence on the scaffold when he was about to be beheaded, and he protested Anne's innocence. And Elizabeth rewarded his family so richly for that. The Norrises were riding high throughout her reign, and she actually was blatant about it. She said, I'm rewarding the Norrises because Henry Norris was the only one to defend my mother. So, you know, that's 
That's as obvious as Elizabeth gets in terms of professing her loyalty towards her mother. But yeah, it's pretty much a closed shop in Elizabeth's court because if you're not a Boleyn, then you're not going to get anything worth having. And then those positions go to the children of uh, the incumbent and then the grandchildren of them. So they, they become pretty much hereditary. And yeah, good luck, anybody who's not a Boleyn trying to get a, a decent job at Elizabeth's court. I love how much Henry would have hated that. Oh, he hated the fact that Anne is now the most famous of the six wives because he wanted her to be the exact opposite to that, you know, to mm. brush her from history. But, uh, yeah, it didn't quite succeed there. Well, he should have gotten rid of Anne. Um, sorry, he should have gotten rid of Elizabeth then, shouldn't he? Because yeah, exactly yeah. What he did. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, history's greatest irony. You know, Henry could have relaxed when Elizabeth was born. She would turn out pretty well. He didn't need to keep trying for a son. Uh, but there you go. Wisdom of hindsight, I guess, to be fair to Henry, if we must, he didn't know that at the time. Um, I have read this bizarre theory, and I think it is taking things too far, that Elizabeth avenged her mother's death by deliberately not marrying and therefore not having children and therefore bringing her father's dynasty to an end. I think that's that's possibly pushing it too far. Possibly I don't think, stretching it a bit. I, I think, I think yeah. that's probably not why Elizabeth chose not to marry. But I think there's enough evidence of the angst about until she's kind of at peace with the idea. There's enough evidence about yeah. the angst of having an heir um, and where the Tudor dynasty is going that you can say that is not true. But yeah. it would be funny if you found a letter saying, screw you, dad. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be a virgin. Yeah, Not exactly. <laughs> I'm going to die a virgin. I'll get it on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, that now I've got like a virgin going around my head because I'm, I'm doing in that shameless plug alert. I'm doing a theatre tour at the moment called How to Be a Good Monarch. And I tell the story of Elizabeth and her brilliant PR and how she branded her virginity. And we have Madonna playing in the background while I'm talking about Elizabeth. So I can't. It's cheesy. <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works. Anyway, so the French, yeah, they go on to make some really rude marks about Anne. How does Elizabeth react to all of this? Oh, they do, those naughty French. There is, early in Elizabeth's reign, she hears about this pamphlet that's been published in France um, by de Saconnet, and excuse my terrible French accent, who really lays into Anne. He calls her a Jezebel and a whore. And this pamphlet uh, becomes a bit of a bestseller. It's, it's printed all over France. And Elizabeth hears about it and she is livid. And she demands her um, ambassador, uh, Nicholas Throckmorton, make sure that uh, the King of France suppresses this pamphlet, has them all rounded up and burned and, you know, everybody punished who's involved. But the French are quite slow to act on this. And I think the reason they're slow is because um, the king is very young and incapable. And his mother, uh, Catherine de' Medici, is really in charge. And she loves this. She loves this scandal that's kind of casting the Queen of England's mother in a bad light. Because she is fostering the Queen of Scots, who is Elizabeth's great rival. So, yeah, bring it on. Um, so this all kind of escalates into this huge diplomatic incident. And... It almost comes to blows until finally Catherine backs down and says, OK, I'll make sure the pamphlet is suppressed and we'll, we'll, you know, punish de Saconet, although I think they never do. Um, but I think that's one of the most telling occasions of, of how Elizabeth felt towards her late mother, because mostly she's quite subtle. 
uh, oh, excuse me, so sorry, <laughs> got a cold, because mostly Elizabeth's quite subtle about her mother, but not on that occasion. It really does cause this huge diplomatic incident, and I quite admire Elizabeth for going head to head with Catherine de Medici over it. Absolutely. Um, we were going to ask you as a last question how alike they were, but I think you've kind of answered that already. I want to know what do you think if Anne could have given her daughter any advice? What do you think she would have said to Elizabeth, and what do you think Elizabeth might have gained if she had her mother around? Oh gosh, what a great question. Well, I think probably one of the bits of advice Anne would have given Elizabeth is one that she didn't need to be told him that don't marry. <laughs> don't mm. marry because, you know, you're a woman in a man's world, but you can wield power effectively. And I think that's something Elizabeth absolutely kind of knew instinctively and had sort of learned from her mother's example that a woman could wield power. Um And, um but, you know, I think if Anne had lived and if she'd been around, I think she would have been Elizabeth's closest confidant by far. I, I think they would have, perhaps it might have been a bit of a fiery relationship at times because they were both, as I say, quite mercurial, quite short-tempered, uh, obstinate. They liked their own way. But I think they'd have just been this power couple, this this kind of dream team. And Anne would have been advising Elizabeth, pushing her forward. Um, but, yeah, I just I just wish, you know, that Anne could have known how um, things would turn out uh, when she was kneeling there on the scaffold about to die, that actually she had given birth to the triumph of the Tudor dynasty and it would all come good. She would have her sweet revenge on Henry VIII. Mm. Oh, she absolutely does, doesn't she? Because Anne wins in the end, but she must have been so fearful for her daughter when she oh, was yeah. on that scaffold. And that's why she's nice about Henry, I think. She gives this speech where you'd expect Anne, being the sort of woman she was, to really lay into Henry. You know, I'm about to die. Yeah. I'm going to tell everybody what I think of him. That last text before you block someone, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but there's none of that. It's like, you know, he's the most merciful prince, the most loving prince. And blah, blah. but um, and she does that so that Henry will look kindly on Elizabeth. It's all for Elizabeth. And inside, she must have been biting her tongue until it almost fell off um, with what she wanted to say about the injustice that had brought her to this moment. But instead, she was meek and mild and she had her daughter at the forefront of her mind. And I love that line that she says about, you know, if in future anyone will meddle in my cause, I pray that they will judge the best. In other words, that was almost, I think, an invitation to Elizabeth to look into what happened to her mother and to make her own judgment on it and uh, judge the best. Don't necessarily believe the hype about Anne yeah. It's about as close as she comes to staying like, yeah, you might sniff around this because it's bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's just a great line. It's a great line. And I think, yeah, Elizabeth definitely judges the best and spends her life rehabilitating her mother. I think it's such a touching story. And looking at all the mementos that Elizabeth surrounds herself with, when her father dies, um, his children are given the pick of his possessions. And Edward and Mary go for the high value items, but Elizabeth goes for the little items that all are connected with her mother. And I think that just speaks volumes, uh, really, including that famous checkers ring now in the prime minister's country residence, the, uh, the little ring that opens up to show a portrait of Anne and a portrait of Elizabeth. 
I think that is that's hard to beat. Tracy, thank you so much. This book is a triumph. I've read it. It's awesome. Oh, uh, thank you. It is out now. What are you working on next? So actually, I'm, I'm going back to fiction for the next three books. Mm-hmm. I'm writing, um, and not a trilogy, but I'm writing three separate novels. And uh, all I can say is the first is set in the Tudor period. Hooray! Because my okay. my first trilogy, uh, fiction trilogy, was uh, all about the Stuarts and the dark and dangerous world of the gunpowder plot but this one i'm going back to familiar territory and uh and the world of the tudors excellent we look forward to the reading and thank you so much been a real pleasure talking to you both thank you our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest books you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.